Historians tell us that probably the Apostle Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthian church. We do know that there's at least three because there's a reference made to the um, heated letter, hot letter. Now, 1 Corinthians was pretty direct, but that's not the letter that they're referencing. But there is no doubt letters that were sent to the Corinthian church because it was a needy church. Interestingly, the church in Corinth was a church that was gifted with, as Paul put it, in every gift. In other words, they had multi-talented, multi-gifted people for the work of the ministry. They had some very intelligent people. But sometimes intelligence can lead somebody to make an idol out of intellect. That's not an excuse to be ignorant, but it's a warning not to be caught up with intellectualism. And I wouldn't want to argue with the Apostle Paul, but some tried. They argued that he was not such a hot apostle. He was not worthy to say some of the things that he said. We don't have apostles today. Apostles were those who saw the literal bodily form of the resurrected Christ. And they were given apostolic gifts that are off the scene. They passed off the scene. And they had the ability to write what we call the canon of Scripture. But there were some who questioned Paul. Some have said that Paul, with a lawyer's skill set, if he lived today, would probably possess by his own intellect the possession of three PhDs. He was a very intelligent man. God used him, obviously. And when we come to, in this second epistle that we have in the Bible to the Corinthian church, he has been telling them for nine chapters how to live life to the fullest and how to give their life as a follower of Christ. I'll say this once again. If you want to live life to the max, be a follower of Jesus Christ. Be a disciple of his. But when we come to chapter 10, now you understand, Paul didn't write with, div, with chapter divisions, but when we come to this section of the, of the letter, it gives the appearance that Paul picks up the pen and begins to write himself. It's neither here nor there if he did or didn't, but he really, he really grabs their attention and he says, now I've got something very, very important for you to hear. Now pay attention. And so I want you to pick it up with me beginning in verse one. It simply says, now I, Paul, myself beseech you. Now, you probably know this, but Paul had secretaries. He would, he would speak the word of God, and as he was moved by the Spirit of God, and these secretaries that he even references would write down those words. I can imagine there were times they said, Paul, Paul, slow down, slow down. I can't keep up with you. I don't know if that to be a fact, but very possibly so. It looks like Paul is speaking directly, maybe by his own handwriting, though that's probably not true. He's just saying, give me your attention. I, Paul, myself, beseech you. The word beseech means I beg of you. I urge you. I'm grabbing the lapels of your cloaks and saying, please get this. I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now stop right there. What's he saying? He's saying, I try to speak to you with Christ-like meekness. Your pastor and I were talking last night about what a real man is, is a man who has power under control. That's true meekness, and that's Christ-likeness. Paul said, Paul said, I approach you in this letter. I'm trying to speak to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ who, now he's going to quote his critics, what they've said about him, 
who in presence, I'm base among you. That is, I'm lowly. I'm not very bold around you. But being absent, I'm bold towards you. In other words, his critics were saying, these intellectual people were saying, you know, when Paul sends these letters, they're just kind of in our face. They're very confrontational. But when he shows up, he's not that bold. He's not so much to look for and look to. He's not such a hot character. And so Paul uses their statement, and he says now in verse 2, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence. That word confidence means authority. All right, you hear what he's saying? He's saying, I've written these letters boldly so that when I am with you, I don't have to come with this bold apostolic authority. Now he's going to go on to say, but I will if I have to. He goes on to say, with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. He said, I got my critics saying, he's just, he's just speaking to us in the flesh. He's not in the spirit. For though we do walk in this flesh, this body, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds Casting down imaginations. There's those philosophies of people. Casting down wrong thinking. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Paul is addressing to these dear friends of his how to how to live life in the days of warfare that we all find ourselves in. He's trying to teach them how he's going to wage warfare, how he has tried to wage warfare against the devil and against sinful, idolatrous thinking and living. And by that, he is saying to them, and here's how you can wage warfare. Look, when I was in the eighth grade, do you remember the eighth grade? For a boy, he's having to relearn how to walk. I mean, his body is just kind of, you know, gangly, and he's trying to learn how to uh, get uh, reacclimate himself to being able to uh, exist. And he usually lives in the kitchen. He can't get enough food. I mean, he's got his hand over uh, one hand on the refrigerator and the other one in the pantry looking for food. He just ate supper 20 minutes ago. He's just always hungry. Anyway, I don't know what got me off on that. When I was in the eighth grade, I was uh, I convinced my mother <coughs> that I wanted some boxing gloves. Now, I was, not a, I was never a brawler. I was never a fighter. I was never someone who loved to fight. But there was this buzz at school about all these famous boxers, and people were talking about them and watching them. And, I mean, I, it was the days of Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier and, uh, uh, you know, and George Foreman. Ladies, you know him, don't you? You've made him very rich by uh, the grillers, you know, and so forth. Well, all these guys that were boxers, and I convinced Mom I wanted some boxing gloves. And so we... We got some boxing gloves at a store called Western Auto. I don't even know if they've got them anymore, those little stores. And uh, I, the youth-sized boxing gloves, they were red, like the red of your carpet here. And so I, we went home, and I put that first glove, that big old mitt on my hand, but now I can't use my hand to, to function, so I'd start my hand in the second one, then you'd grab it with your teeth and pull it on like that. Then somebody had to lace up your boxing gloves, you know? And, and now, you know, I didn't want a shadow box. I needed someone to fight, you know? And I, did, I didn't have a brother. But I did have a sister. And so I, uh, we, uh, we worked on that, and we, got, we put them on my sister. And in my heart, I'm thinking, this is, the, this is what I've been waiting for. You know, I mean, I, this is the moment of my life. And my mother warned me, you be nice to your sister. And I said, oh, you can count on it, Mom, but you can't leave the room. And so, and so in the house, in the living room, we, we moved all the furniture. And so I was getting ready to punch it out with my sister. And, you know, it was, it was a waste of time. She started doing this stuff like this, you know, fighting like a girl. Go figure, you know. 
And I said, forget it. Let's don't do this. So I called my best buddy. His name was Gary, best friend. I said, Gary, get over here. I said, I got new boxing gloves. And he says, really? I said, yeah, come over. He got on his bike, left his neighborhood, rode over to our house. Now, uh, Gary was my best friend. I mean, we did everything together, rode bikes all over town. I mean, we, we just, we, we did all kinds of things together. And so we got him all fixed up and laced up and got him ready to go. And we, we, uh, we went outside. Now, I lived in a typical neighborhood house after a row of houses and so forth. And we went uh, in, in between my house and my neighbor's house. And uh, now we're the best of friends. We're not going to land any serious blows on each other. You know, we're not about to do that. We're just kind of tapping gloves, you know, and having fun. Say, whoop, watch out, guard your face, you know. And we never hit anybody. We never hit each other hard. If I hit him in the side or anything, it was soft, and he did the same with me. Nothing. Now, ladies, you got to understand something about the male uh, genre here. Um, if, if you see a couple of, if, if men see a fight that's about to break out or something, you know, there's something that pulls a man to it. He's, he wants to watch it, you know. He may even need to call the police. And he, he, he will eventually, but he wants to watch it for a few moments, you know. Well, me and Gary were laughing and we were just tapping gloves. My next door neighbor was a house full of boys, five boys, all ages, and uh, they looked out the windows because they could hear the racket and they could, they could see what was going on. And they said, oh, man, there's a fight. Well, there really wasn't. But they came running out the door. And as they came running out, uh, one of them yelled down the street because I could see he yelled down the street, there's a fight down here at Glacier's. Well, there really wasn't a fight. But all of a sudden, boys came riding up on their bikes and f jumping off their bikes to see the fight. And we had, all of a sudden, we had a mob. I think there were 11. And, uh, and, and they, they had gathered around to watch the fight. And Gary and I looked at each other like, can you believe this? And so again, we're tapping, and, and these guys were just kind of gathered over here to our, 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 our side over here. And we didn't have a lot of room between two homes. So we're, we're just kind of laughing and, and everything. And all of a sudden, these guys that all knew me because uh, we all live in the same neighborhood. They didn't know Gary. They all, they all started chanting, you know, Gleiser, Gleiser, Gleiser. Rocky didn't even exist, but Rocky just kind of came into my thinking all of a sudden. And all of a sudden I thought, you know, I, I need to represent the neighborhood, you know, and I looked at my former friend, Gary, and uh, I thought, I don't need you. You know, I, I've, got, I've got my crowd. He saw the change in my countenance. And before he had time to protect himself, boom, I landed one right in the middle of his face. And he went falling back into the bushes into, next to our house. It's a great memory. And, and I, I remember just watching that with the, the crowd they just went wild. That's what they wanted to see. And they all went, yeah! Well, in my humble uh, 13, 14-year age that I had going for me, I turned to my adoring fans, and I just lifted my hands up in the air like, yes, yes. You're safe. I'm in the neighborhood. You know, I'm right here. And I forgot something. Somebody was coming out of the bushes, and he was not real happy. And he was thinking one thought. Okay, pal, you want to do it that way? Have some yourself. And so with my guard completely out of place, I turn and all of a sudden I begin to take blow after blow after blow coming after me. Now, in some sad and silly way, can I tell you as a reminder tonight, when it comes to living the Christian life, friends, you can have at times in your Christianity seasons of real victory. You're living strong. You're defeating temptation. You're overcoming the flesh. You're living for the Lord. It's as if, boom, Satan doesn't have a way to get in on you, but he's just waiting for the right moment. The war will never be over till you cross the finish line. Many a Christian has either forgotten that you're in warfare against the flesh, against Satan, against the world and its philosophy, or maybe 
closer to the truth. Many a Christian has gotten to the point of just tolerating where they are, and they'll say, well, I'm, I'm just doing the best I can. I'm the, I, you know, I, I, I'll never really be a victorious Christian, so I'll just kind of make my way through life, and uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'll be at church, and I'll, I'll sing the songs of, oh, victory in Jesus, but, you know, when temptation comes after me, I'm sure going to fall just about every time. But, you know, that's just the way I am. It's really not my fault, Brother Glycer. No, it's not. you got to understand, the home I came out of, you know, we didn't have a good example. I've never been mentored, you see. And you got to understand, I, uh, I, I'm kind of weak in that area because, I mean, when I was a teenager, I saw it exemplified in front of me. And so I just, you know, I'm still living with some of the same things I started doing when I was a teenager. Oh, I'm saved. Oh, I'm saying, yeah, I'm going to heaven, but it is what it is. It's like the old proverbial Christian life of taking two steps forward and two steps back or three steps back. Are you living in victory tonight? You say, no, Morris, are you preaching sinless perfection? You know better than that, I hope. Of course not. But I'm asking you, is Satan getting the victory over you on a daily basis? The Apostle Paul talks about strongholds. Did you see it? Look at verse 4. He is trying to tell them that there are strongholds that people get in their lives. He says in verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The word carnal means fleshly or material. He says, we're in a war. He's not denying the fact that we're in a campaign that's a battle. He says, but they are mighty through God. Here it comes to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, you reread the word strongholds. If I ask you, what's the definition to you of a stronghold? You'd say something that's got a big, strong grip on me. And that, was, that would not be far afield. But in the days of the Grecian Roman Empire, a stronghold was a fortress, a large castle. A castle that would sit in Corinth at the edge of town up in a mountainous, a hill, hilly side, hillside, that if ever an attacking army would be coming in to attack Corinth, people for the benefit of their own safety would get into this fortress. And that fortress was not only hard to approach, it usually had a, a giant wall completely around it. You had to have the bridge lowered to be able to get to it. Not only that, there was usually a moat of water, and that water was filled with some of the city sewage, okay? And underneath the level of that watery section between uh, uh, the wall and the fortress, uh, in the water would be spikes that would not be visible to the eye so that if soldiers were commanded to jump in and somehow or another try to scale the wall of the fortress, those spikes would impale many of them. And this, this fortress looked to be impregnable, impenetrable, undefeatable. It looked as if it was unapproachable. And if an enemy was coming after a city, the city fathers and anybody who was an official could hide out in this fortress, and if anyone attacked it, they couldn't get into the stronghold. Paul is using that as a metaphor to say, you and I get strongholds in our lives that appear to be undefeatable, uh, impenetrable. It's an unalterable uh, area in our life that we will just kind of carry along the rest of our life. Do you remember the writer of Hebrews spoke about the besetting sin? He said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. What's he talking about? Strongholds. He's talking about something that, is e that easily trips you up. To be besieged or to be beset is the idea of something... Well, it's, it's the word that means to be entangled. Like a person who had a robe on, if ever they were walking in haste down the road, that robe would begin to uh, make its way down and a sandal or foot could get, get, get caught at the lower level of that, of that robe and you'd get tangled up and you'd get tripped up. The Bible speaks about uh, to, to guard yourself against those things that easily 
trip you up. The greatest example, boys and girls, you know this one, is a story from the Old Testament. There was a guy named David who had to face the giant. And Goliath was undefeatable. He held at bay all of the Israelites over here on the mountainside in the valley of Elah. The, the children of Israel, the soldiers of Israel could not march forward and go after the enemy of the Philistines. Why? Because there was a giant in the way until David, who represents Jesus Christ, stepped in. So let me just summarize all that by asking you this. Now, by the way, my introduction is going to take a while. Don't worry about it when we finally get to point one. I'll move swift. I ask you something tonight. What is your strong hold? What's your giant? S plural. What are the things that you get easily tripped up in? You know what happens is after a while we begin to excuse it. We start thinking that it's something that it's just a part of my makeup. It's a part of my, my DNA. It's what I, my, my world I grew up in. It's just what I've got to, you know, and we start excusing it saying it's not as bad as someone else. And yet your spiritual progress like the children of Israel could not go forward. Why? Because of a giant area in your life that you just can't seem to get victory over. Can I remind you of 1 John 5, 4? You know what it says? It says, whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 2 Corinthians, right here in this letter, chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul said, now thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. What, what's the area that gets you defeated? For some people, it's, uh, they're always concerned about what somebody else is thinking about them. It's a fear of man. I mean, you, you, you love the Lord, no question about it, but you're always concerned about what somebody else is thinking about you. You, you, you can't witness, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't uh, be comfortable in your, your spiritual life because there's this fear of man, there is this constant concern about what people are thinking. And that leads to a lot of worrying and fearfulness in your life. For somebody else, it's a love of things. You're consumed with consuming. That is, you're constantly got to get something new, something that's uh, the best, something that somebody else does not have. There's a love for things. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with getting new stuff. That's not the point. But there may be a, a, a proneness to some greed and, and a proneness to pride uh, that you're constantly dissatisfied with what you have in life, always wanting to get something else. It's, it's the giant. It's the thing that just it consumes your thoughts. It rivals the throne room of the Lord in your life. For somebody else, it's the lust of the flesh. It's that secretly running down paths of indecency and inappropriateness and immorality. And it's fed by what you look at and fed by what you listen to and fed by what you think on. And by the way, I know that most of the time we think of lust of the flesh, we think of nothing but adultery and, and all that goes along with that. A person who can't control their, uh, their, uh, their eating and, and someone who battles with drugs and someone who's battling with drinking and smoking and, and, and such forth as that, uh, they have a craving to satisfy the flesh. It's a lust of the flesh. For somebody else, it's insecurity. Now, I've already touched this. Maybe it's the fact that you don't feel like God truly loves you like he loves other people. You feel like you're always trying to earn God's favor, and you're on what one man called the performance treadmill. i got to keep working harder to get God's attention and get God's favor. And there's a sense of insecurity to your life. You're unsure of your own ability to do anything for the Lord. For somebody else, it's where I preached last night. You have a temper issue. You've got anger problems. You're unforgiving. There's a rudeness. There's an unwillingness to see the good in other people unless they really do something nice for you. People constantly bother you. You're quick-tempered. For somebody else, it's just maybe a love of self. That's just kind of a summarizing statement, a love of self, whatever it takes to please me. 
You love to gossip and cut other people down to make yourself feel good. There's a self-centeredness. There's a self-pity, feeling sorry for yourself, and you want others to feel the same way. You're easily offended. You're touchy. Uh, you're, you're self-sufficient. You feel like, I'm good enough. I'm all right, Lord. Let's, let's work together on this thing. It's self Paul is trying to show us, more importantly, God is trying to show us tonight that you cannot defeat the enemy in your own strength. You can't see strongholds pulled down by simply saying, I'm going to try harder. Look at verse 3, would you? Look at it. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, that's the human body, we do not war after the flesh. He says, We're not, we, you're not going to grit your teeth and say... I'm going to defeat this temptation. I'm going to defeat this sin in my life that constantly knocks me off my feet. I'm going to do it because I'm going to, I really, really, really mean business this time. He's saying you can't do it that way. The flesh isn't going to win the battle. You can get all emotional and say, oh, I just want to live for God. I just, I just, Nobody can understand what you're saying because you're all emotional. You're not going to defeat the flesh by getting emotional. You say, well, what do I do? Look at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare. Okay, so Paul, you're saying that there are weapons? Yeah, there are weapons to fight the fight of your life. Well, what are they? Well, they're not of the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Well, what are they? They are mighty. That word mighty is the word dynamite. If a dynamite stick goes off, it makes a difference. The weapons of our warfare are they're mighty through God. Now, do you want to live in victory? You want to quit worrying? You want to quit being full of self? You want to quit the sin habits? You say, Morris, you didn't even mention the things I battle with. I probably could have failed in that area several times over. Would you just get in your own heart and mind tonight the things that seem to be constantly tripping you up spiritually? Would you like to see victory? What do we do? Look what he says. We have weapons that are mighty through God. Number one. What does that mean? He means we are mighty through the Spirit of God. Now, folks, I'm not going to get spooky with you. And anytime someone starts talking about the Holy Spirit, some people go, oh, I've been waiting for this. Oh, this is good, yes. Talk to us about the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't get spooky. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God given to us. He is God who moved inside of us upon salvation. He indwells us. And the Holy Spirit will empower us to fight the temptations, the things that are strongholds in our life. He said the weapons of our warfare are mighty. How, Paul? Through God. He's talking about the spirit-controlled life. The songwriter wrote the words, Help me, Lord, to live a life that's dependent on your grace. The idea there is to say in your life, Lord, I get this area of weakness in my life. I got this area that constantly defeats me in my life. And God, it just has knocked me off my feet thousands of times. God, I'm weak in this area. But I can't defeat it. But you can. And your word tells me I am mighty through you. My dad wanted me to learn how to play baseball. And I love baseball to this day. I love baseball. My dad took me out in the front yard. I was a little tyke of a guy. He bought me a baseball bat. I still have it. It was, of course, a wooden bat, not aluminum. It was a wooden bat back when men were men. And uh, he, said, uh, he said, son, let's go outside. I'm a little guy. And he says, I'm going to show you how to hit a baseball. And so he took this bat, and he said, now, first of all, you put your left hand down here by the knob. I said, okay, daddy. He said, then you take your other hand and you put it on top of that hand right there. Okay, Daddy. He said, now lift your elbow. I said, okay. He said, no, no, not that one. This one back here. I said, okay. He said, lift it up, lift it up, lift it up, lift it up. I said, okay, okay. He goes, now get your feet about shoulder width apart. Okay, Daddy. He said, now the picture's going to be over there, so you've got to turn your face 
right over there so you can watch that ball coming towards you. Get that elbow up. Yes, sir. Okay, daddy. Okay, daddy. He said, now, he said, now move your arms all as far back as they'll go. I said, okay, daddy. And I said, he said, keep that elbow up. Okay, daddy. Okay. He said, now, son, when the ball comes, when it's released from the pitcher's hand, don't be looking at the pitcher. You watch the ball come out of his hand. And as it comes, you make contact with, you're going to get in the habit of making that bat hit the ball. Eye-hand coordination. He says, but when you hit the ball, don't stop. He says, don't just go, thunk. He says, follow through. You always follow through. And he said, so you want to go completely all the way around and break your wrist. I said, break my wrist. He said, turn your wrist all the way around as far as you can. He said, now, son, you don't have to do this. But a lot of times when batters bat, they lift that front foot and step into it to get maybe a little extra power. And you may can do that as time goes by. Okay, daddy. I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue how to hit a baseball. I didn't have a clue. He's given me all this education. This, 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 and step into it. He gave my sister some kind of little soft, spongy ball, and he took, he showed her where to stand and got ready to throw it. He put me in position. I've been well educated to hit a baseball. He's given me all this instruction, and then just before my sister threw the ball, my dad stood behind me. I could feel him up against me. He put his arms around me. He put his hands on top of my hands. And all of a sudden, that bat began to move. I didn't plan on I just was kind of going along for the ride, you know. I didn't know when it was going to move. I was just, he says, get that elbow up. Okay, daddy. And, and I didn't know what was going to happen. He finally said, all right, Barbara, throw the ball. And so she threw the ball, and I was looking up to see what happened. And kaboom! That bat moved with force, and that ball went sailing over her head down the street. And I thought, wow, I'm good. I didn't realize how good I'm going to be. It's a piece of cake to play this game. My sister, my dad said, Barbara, go get the ball. And so I loved to tell her what to do. I said, yeah, Baba, go get the ball. So she went down the street and got the ball. She came back. I got educated again, hands together, elbow up, arms back, face forward, step into it, and, and follow through all the way around. And just before she threw the ball, he reached around me, put his hands on me, and all of a sudden that bat began to move with force. And when she threw the ball, shoom, that bat moved quickly. At some point, two, three tries into that, I finally said, Daddy, Back off. Let me do this. He said, you can't even hang on to the bat by yourself. It was a real heavy bat to me. He said, you can't do it. You're not strong enough. I said, Daddy, you saw what I did. I can do this. He said, all right, you go ahead. So I picked up the telephone pole, also called a baseball bat, and I, it trembled in my hands. I couldn't hardly hang on to it. I had to separate my hands just to kind of keep it still, and everything was out of whack, and nothing was going to work. I was completely uh, incapable of doing anything on my own. I didn't know what I was doing. Although I'd gotten all that education, my sister threw the ball and I swung the bat with all my force and I missed the ball entirely. But the bat came around and hit me on the side of the head and I fell down on the ground. I looked up for mercy and I got nothing from dad. And my sister, my sister greatly enjoyed it, you know, and uh, she, she, she really did like it. And you know what I discovered? I, I'm, I, I couldn't do it without daddy's hands. And any person who thinks I can live the Christian life, I'm smart. I've been educated. I've been taught the word of God for years. And this preacher gets up and he says, you need to be spirit controlled. You go, yep, 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 got it. I know, I know the Holy Spirit. He's been given. Let me tell you something. The Christian life looks like this. Lord, I can't, but you can. Please use me as best you can. Lord, use me. Put your hand on me. In the Old Testament, there was a king by the name of Jehoshaphat. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, he was told that three armies had come together and were coming to the, to the cities of Judah to attack. Listen to this. You know what the king said? 
he went into that temple of God and he put down himself on the floor of the temple and he cried out to God and he said, God, I don't know what to do. There's far too many of them. We can't defeat them on our own. And then he said this, but our eyes are upon you. The Christian life, if you're going to live in victory, it starts out by saying, Lord, I'm weak. I want to live in victory. I got this problem with, fill in the blank. I got this problem with, the, oh, I don't know, just make up some, something. I got a problem with, the, uh, uh, with, with cursing. I, I, I get mad and I say things that I shouldn't say. Boys and girls, I don't. I'm just using it as an illustration. And that person needs to say, oh, God, I'm weak. It's something that trips me up constantly. God, I'm weak without your help. Put your hands upon me and help me get to live in victory. The tools, the weapons that the Lord gives us is number one, to be spirit controlled. Number two, are you still with me? I know there's a lot of noise and so forth, so please stay with me. Number two, to be mighty through God means secondly, to be Mighty through God, the Spirit of God, and mighty through God, the Scriptures of God. Friends, this book is called a sword, and it's a sword for a reason. When Paul was telling the church at Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God, he said, and, and take up the sword, which is the Word of God. You know, James, the first pastor as we have in the scriptures, told his congregation, he said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And the way to resist the devil is by using the scriptures to attack back the one who has gotten the best of you. Now look at me. Don't miss this. It may be so simple it's going to pass you by. The more you meditate upon and saturate your life with and memorize the truths of the sword and incorporate them into your life, the more you'll be able to say, Satan, you're not going to have the best of me because the Bible says, that's what Jesus did. Both in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, you can read where Jesus was tempted of the devil for 40 days. And what did he say? It is written. Satan, it is written. Now, we only have three examples, but friends, he was there for 40 days. Don't get the idea that he was only tempted three times. He was tempted over and over and over again in the three categories, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He was hammered by the devil for 40 days, and he simply said, no, I'm not going there because it is written. Now, if Jesus used the scriptures to attack back against the devil, what are you and I doing? That area of weakness, that area that trips you up. Have you ever memorized a verse to help you to say, no, I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that because the Bible says that. You have a problem with worry. You ever wake up in the middle of the night, can't go back to sleep because you're worried sick about something. You know what you need to have in your arsenal? A sword that says this, be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I'm not going there. I'm not going to go there. That's just one verse or two. Uh, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Lord, I'm not going to worry because I'm, I'm resting and trusting in you. You will keep me in perfect peace. You have a problem with anger? You have an issue with losing your temper? Or maybe you ought to be thinking about Proverbs 14, 17. He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly. He, uh, Ecclesiastes 7, 9. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of a fool. How can I overcome this Goliath in my life? How can I overcome the temptation that keeps knocking me off my feet? There might, you have weapons that are mighty through God. You're not going to find it in yourself. Number one, through the, being spirit controlled. Number two, by being scripturally controlled, by being, uh, having the word of God in your life. And there's one more thing. 
Look, please, if you would, at verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. How are we able to defeat the enemy? Finally, by being spiritually minded. In other words, thinking right. He says here, bring your thoughts into captivity. Now look, whenever an army defeated another army, there were, there were bodies that were slain on the battlefield, but now here's the deal. If they, if they took many prisoners into captivity, here's what they did. Corinthian people understood this. They would bring back into their, home, their hometown the defeated enemy, those that were alive. If there was a, a, a general, a captain that had been their major warrior, he had become, they'd be coming in, and all of their uh, regalia would be removed. Any, any crown would be removed off of a king's head had he been out there on the battlefield. And they would be marched back into the city of Corinth or whatever other Roman city or uh, Grecian city. They'd be brought back into the city. They would be brought into captivity. And as they were brought back in, they were mocked. And they were told, you have no power. You have no sword. You have no armor. You have no crown. You have, you're, you're brought into captivity. What's he saying? He's saying, you do that with your thought life. Bring your thoughts into a place where they have no power. It'd be like someone in here trying to vacuum the carpets here, and their vacuum cleaner is plugged into that plug over there against the wall. And if I went over there and I unplugged the vacuum cleaner, they can kind of move that machine around, but it's not going to do anything. Pastor can stand up here at the organ, but if we found the plug wherever it is, and if I unplugged it, he'd just be up there hitting keys and nothing would come out. Why? The power's gone. The Bible says here, take away the power of wrong thinking. Bring your wrong thoughts into captivity. This is certainly not original with me, but you've probably heard it before. Here's, here's what somebody has said. Sow a thought, you know, like a farmer. Sow a thought. Let, let a thought take root. And you'll reap a desire. Sow that desire and you'll reap an action. I'm going to do it. You sow that action, you'll reap a habit. You sow that habit, you'll reap a lifestyle. How does a person become, let's just say, a drunkard? How does a person become a criminal? How does a person become a drug addict? How does a person become guilty of looking at things they shouldn't online? How does a person get bound up with a, a, a bad mouth? How does a, person, how does a person have a lifestyle that is captured by sin? You know where it all started? It all started by one day he had, she had a thought. It's not that big of a deal. And you allowed it to take root. And it led to a desire. I wonder what happened if I, yeah. And then it led to an action, yeah. And then it led to an action again and again. Then it turned into a habit and that habit turned into a lifestyle. Let me tell you something, it all goes back to bringing your thoughts into captivity. Let me be practical. It looks like this. God, I'm so weak in this area. God, I don't want to be defeated. I want to live in victory. I want to. Now, Lord, I was thinking about that verse that you gave me. <clears throat> I know there's power to your word. And Lord, yeah, 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 yeah. What's that verse? Yeah. Uh, what, what, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There's a power to the word of God. And when the thought creeps in, to participate in something. What do you do? You unplug it. You say, now Morris, what do you mean by that? You take it into captivity. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? It sounds like this. Nope, nope, not going to think that thought. Nope, nope. Worry grips you. Nope, nope, I'm not going to allow worry to take over. Not going to do it. Mm -mm. No. 
Lord, what's that verse? Yeah, yeah, let me think on that verse. What's that song we sang on Sunday? Yeah, quicken me. That's the only one I could think of. Uh, quicken me, oh Lord, I pray. Or, or uh, whatever other song you, you may have on your heart. And you start thinking of those other things. What are you doing? You're bringing your thoughts into captivity. You say, Morris, as soon as I say I'm not going to think that thought, it'll just come right back to me. Yeah, no, so you unplug it again. He said, but it'll come back. Unplug it again and again and again and again. And here's what happens. Here's what happens. For a while, those unplugging, bringing your thoughts into captivity, saying, I'm not going to think it. No, no, I'm going to think on something that's better. They, they may be in repetition pretty back to back to back, but after a while, the distance between thoughts gets further and further along until after a while you begin to not having that thought. Oh, it may creep up every once in a while. But every time something comes up, something comes on the TV screen you shouldn't look at. Nope, nope, not going to look at that. Not going there. Nope. Not going to think on that. Nope. You, you're ready to explode on your spouse because he, because she, fill in the blank. You go, why don't, <clears throat> wait a minute. I'm not going to go there. Not going to go there. Not going to lose my temper. God help me. I'm weak in this area. You bring those thoughts into captivity. God, you help me because I want to state my position. Bring it into captivity. Linda and I have talked to several people who have struggled with the security of their salvation. They've made seven, eight, 10, 12, 15 professions of faith thinking maybe maybe this time when I pray I won't worry next I won't worry when things are collapsing that maybe I didn't get saved I didn't understand everything I didn't say the right words I didn't know what repentance meant I did and we've told them now look what does the Bible say is this what you did you called upon the Lord for salvation I did then you rest in that. And so when the fear comes upon you you come back to the word of God and say no Lord I'm not going to be afraid. Because here's what your word said. No, I'm not going to be afraid. No, I'm, I'm plugging that thought. Lord, I'm focusing on the truth of your word. Spirit of God, strengthen me. Because I don't have the ability in my own hands, my own ability. God, help me think right. When I went off to college, I was a very self-focused teenage boy. I was a guy who uh, had a temper problem. I, uh, I was easily ticked off, as people often say. It's the strangest thing what they do to kids when you go off to college. It's strange. It was dangerous. They put you in a room and they give you roommates. How dangerous that could be when I, as an 18-year-old boy, had to straighten everybody out, you know, and uh, all these upperclassmen. <sighs> Things would happen and you'd get, I'd get angry and I'd get upset. I'd get upset at the school for some rule that they would have or something. I met this girl. She was a cheerleader for the team I played for. Her name was Lynn. And uh, we started hanging out. We were having fun. We just went, we went to church together. We had meals together. And we, uh, we went to ga uh, games. Did I mention that already? Yeah, we went to games together. And, and uh, we ate meals together. We went to games together. We just, we had a great time. We were friends. We never said for months, we never said, you know, I love you. Hey, we just didn't go there. We're just getting to know each other. Became very much aware to both of us as the months went by that we were getting more and more serious. One, just to be with each other, check on each other. But Lynn recognized something about me. I'd get angry. I'd get mad at people. I'd get mad at a referee in a ball game. I'd get mad with guys that I was playing with. I'd get mad at some rule at school. I'd get mad. And she was constantly saying, don't let these things bother you. She was very, very calm. And she'd say, don't let those things bother you. Don't let, it's okay. It's all right. Morris, I'm concerned about you. You get mad. I said, well, it's for a good cause. And then all of a sudden I thought, Morris, what's wrong with you? Lynn could tell we were getting serious. And, and she thought he's probably going to someday start getting more and more serious with me. And she said, I like Morris. Maybe she even thought I, I love him. 
But I don't know if I can live with somebody who's got a temper problem like this. I don't want to live with a man like this. She never shared that with me, but no doubt she did with the Lord. And the Lord talked to me. The Lord revealed to me this issue that had been festering and growing in me for years. You know what I did? I didn't know this truth like I'm preaching tonight, but I, pre I prayed it. I said, God, I don't know what to do. Things just get next to me. God, you got to help me. I was asking for the Holy Spirit to come and take control. God, you got to help me. I don't want to get angry. Then I took a five by six, I think it's the size of it, a, an index card. It's bigger than this, but I took an index card and I found every verse that I could find dealing with temper and anger and I wrote it and on both sides. I wrote all these verses down and I had it entitled up there, uh, Verses on Anger. And every day I'd pull that card out and I'd go back and revisit the, 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 the verses that I had memorized the day or two earlier. And then I'd try to learn another one so that when I was tempted to get angry, I could, I could call on those verses, be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of a fool. Don't be a fool. And the word of God began to saturate my life. Didn't tell anybody about what I was doing. Kept it in my Bible. One night, she and I were at a church service, and I put my Bible down, and I said, I'm going to go get a drink of water or go see somebody. I forget what it was. And I got up and left my Bible behind. She just picked up my Bible and started flipping through it. And she ran across an index card that said, verses on anger. <laughs> and I hope she smiled, though I've never asked her. She, she thought, I know what he's doing. He's working on this. And then she thought, you know, I, I could live with a guy who goes to God to get his help. You know what I say about that? I'm glad she felt that way. More importantly, I learned how to live in victory over something that had become a stronghold in my life. Now, for you who are thinking ahead tonight, you sit here and you say, well, preacher man, do you ever get angry? Do you ever lose your temper? Do you ever let things get next to you? Well, let me check something out here. You know, I still got this flesh, don't I? Yeah, sure. But thankfully, to God's praise, I'm a long way from what I used to be. You know what I discovered? You see one stronghold go down, and there's another giant waiting for you. We're in warfare till we cross the finish line. And instead of just kind of getting by and existing in your Christian life, Satan knows when to come out of the bushes and land a blow on you, and we need to learn how to live in victory. Our weapons are mighty, not through ourselves, but through the Spirit of God, through the Scriptures of God, and by being spiritually minded by bringing your thoughts into captivity. And may God help us to start living in real victory.